see, God has made a fantastic proposal to them. He has said, I will give you all this land. You just need to keep my covenant. I will fight for you. And when God says to us, as it were, I will give you the land, your heart's desires, I will give you that. And so the great truth that the book of Judges wants to teach us, and this introduces for us, is that God wants the best for you, but that you need to go and take it. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Brand new series kicking off, Judges, chapter 1, verse 1. We're calling the series, If You Want to Get God, You've Got to Get Over Yourself. Josh Moody is Senior Pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bosteed. Josh, set this one up for us. What are we looking forward to in the book of Judges? It's an amazing book. I mean, it's a great collection of, quote-unquote, interesting individuals. I mean, extraordinary individuals here in the book of Judges and how God uses them. But the core of, of, of the book of Judges is to turn to God and realize that God has for us what is really best. And um, we need to accept that and turn to him and receive it and not run in the opposite direction as so often happened in the book of Judges. And so, as I say, the call is to turn to God and follow him and uh, he is offering to us what is truly best. Hmm. Now, we're going to ask your indulgence as we head back 13 years to a different pastoral assignment of Josh's. And in this particular instance, the recording experienced a few challenges. This will improve as the series continues, but the content here is valuable, and so we're going to soldier on. Judges chapter 1, get over yourself. No compromises. Here's Josh. Well, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament. We're just going to read uh, the last part of the passage we're looking at from chapter 2 and uh, through to verse 5. But we're looking at the whole section. You may ask yourself, why such a long section? Well, the way you study the Bible um, differs depending on the type of literature it is. If you're studying Romans, you don't tend to study one and a half chapters at a time. Uh, But if you're studying a story, uh, and the book of Judges is really a whole series of stories true history, uh, written by God for our edification. If you're studying stories, it's important to get a drift of what's going on and what the narrative is. Hence, we need to look at bigger chunks. And that's what we're doing uh, this morning and in the subsequent weeks as we look at the book of Judges. So we're going to read now, pick up the story, in uh, chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt... And led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and... Their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. A fantastically wealthy, handsome, yet, if truth be told, rather reserved man, barges into the room of an acquaintance of his. This lady, who he deeply admires, is beautiful, 
sensible and of a very different social class to the man. He stammers. He cannot sit down. She looks at him inquiringly. At last he begins. I cannot deny it, he says. My feelings will not go away. Against my better judgment, because our stations in life are so different, and my family will despair at me marrying someone so beneath myself, I must say I do want to marry you. Well, hardly the proposal a young girl has dreamt of, you know. But then not only does she offer a firm no, she goes beyond it and she accuses the reserved but wealthy and handsome man of arrogance and of ruining the life of her sister and one of her new friends. The man is stunned. He can hardly reply but bows, leaves and later writes Miss Elizabeth Bennet a letter to try and set the matter straight. Well, if you're a fan of Jane Austen, you'll recognize the pivotal scene from Pride and Prejudice. What you may not have realized up until now is how relevant it is to the book of Judges. <laughs> Judges has three very unequal sections to it as a whole. There is the middle section, the longest, where the story of the twelve judges is told. They're all called judges, but they're all the twelve leaders or saviors that God sends his people. And that is the middle section. Then there is the conclusion, a briefer section of the book of Judges, where the summary of the book is written from a different angle. Judges appears to have been put together uh, from the narratives of different tribes and not sequentially in, in uh, chronological order. And so the summary of the book is written from a different angle. Then there is the introduction, again a briefer uh, section of the book, from the beginning until chapter 3, verse 6. And that's obviously where we are this morning in the middle of that introduction. Judges is part history. It is also part prophecy as a book. In fact, uh, of course, in our English Bibles, the book, in where it is placed in the Bible, it appears among the history books of the Old Testament, and it is part history. But in the Hebrew Bible, it appears among the former prophets, and that is helpful, because actually what we have here is God revealing to us what all this history means, and what it means to his people at all times and any place in this book, a period from the late Bronze Age, after the death of Joshua, before the beginning of the kings of Israel, sort of in between those two things, uh, this is described, this period of history, not simply, though, as one event after another after another, but revealing under God's inspiration, as I say, it is part prophecy, revealing under God's inspiration the spiritual lesson that God's church needs to learn from this tumultuous period in the history of God's people. And so I know it is the book of Judges, and perhaps you've never had a series on this book in church before, but I believe, as I've been praying about it, that it is of deep relevance to the world today, and also, of course, to the church and our church too. What is it saying? It's saying many different things, but here, this morning, it's saying something like this. We need to accept God's proposal. He is not proud. <laughs> We need not be prejudiced. You see, God has made a fantastic 
proposal to them. He has said, I will give you all this land. You just need to keep my covenant. I will fight for you. I will give you all this land. And when God says to us, as it were, I will give you the land, your heart's desires, I will give you that. Well, then this book calls us to believe his word and to go on and take possession of that land that he has promised for us by faith. Do you see? And so the great truth that the book of Judges wants to teach us, and this introduces for us, is that God wants the best for you, but that you need to go and take it. First, God wants us to be happy, but to ha be happy we need to be holy. And we're going to look at this by various ways of application as we go on uh, looking at this long section together. The first sort of application is this. God wants us to be happy, but to be happy you need to be holy. While the land was flowing with milk and honey, it was a prosperous and wonderful piece of territory. It was God's best possible gift to his people. And they were going to live in houses, they were told, that they had not built. They had not sweated over them. They had put in no sweat equity. It had not cost them anything. They were going to live in mansions they had not built. And they were told they would eat grapes from vineyards that they had not planted. It was an incredible, fabulous, fantastic gift from the loving heart of God to his people. Yet, verse 2 of our chapter 5, you have disobeyed me. So do you see, what it's saying is that God wants you to be happy, but to be happy you need to obey God or you need to be holy in this life. Trust and obey, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. We're just getting started in our brand new study in the book of Judges, and we'll return to that in a moment. But first, a reminder, you're listening to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody, Senior Pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. We're listening to a recording that's 13 years old and uh, might have a few challenges to it. But again, we'll see that recording quality continue as we work our way through the book of Judges in a valuable study. Back into that study now, here's Josh. I met a man who said he was holy. He had a long face. His eyes were sad. And he walked at a funeral pace. Holiness for him was a burden on his back beneath which he bowed every day. He said it was like a cross that he carried to his own constant death. He said he was holy. But such a man forgets that while Jesus did die, he also rose again. And while we are to carry the cross, as Jesus says, we are also to live in his resurrection power, aren't we? And so, friends, you see, when we think about holiness and what it means to be holy and a people set apart for God in all righteousness and godliness to put away the vain deeds of darkness, we are so tempted to think that it is boring, sad, and depressing. But God does not want the kind of holiness that makes people sad. I don't believe the man I met was really holy at all. He was religious. They're not the same thing, necessarily. The kind of religion that God wants is intended to make men and women happy, to, to give them the land, to enter, enjoy, and feast in. See? 
And so, of course, you need to ask yourself, if you're not experiencing God's pleasure, is there some area of your life in which you are disobeying? Because God wants you to have his pleasure. Now, to to understand this, I want you to look at what I think is the the most amazing part of this whole long section. And that is in the end of verse 2. And I want you to look down at it, because I think it's remarkable. You don't often find God asking a question that is then unanswered. You see it? Why have you done this? Can you catch the kind of astonishment on God's breath? It's like, why? I mean, why have you done this? Uh, look at it like this. Uh, as I was thinking it through, here are some ways that I thought would be helpful to put it. It's the question, why have you done this? It's the question of a father who comes down on Christmas Day to discover his son has destroyed the expensive toy that he's been asking for all year. It's the question of a friend who always uh, turned up when needed, overhearing his friend sneering about him to someone else. Why have you done this? You are gaining nothing. You are losing only your own happiness. The land could have been yours. Now it is true, of course, that holiness is about pleasing God, not just pleasing ourselves. And it is true, of course, that holiness can be tough and does require dying to yourself and putting to death the the deeds of darkness and all that. That is true. It is also true that holiness, while dying, leads to life. See, So I want you to feel the power of that call to holiness because God wants to bless you by it. God here in the start of the book of Judges has caused the author of Judges to recount this story not to make us sad but to teach us that God's rule is really no burden. Why have you done this? Look at the land. Go and take it. God's rule is really the royal road to our own happiness. Second, God wants us to be successful, but to be successful, we need to be faithful. Success uh, for some people means worldly success, but the kind of success that God wants for us is better than that, the best by far. He wants us to enter the land, to drive back our enemies, to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. He wants uh, churches up and down the land that are healthy and holy. He wants people, many, many people, turning to him in great throngs of devotion. He wants us to be, you to be, all that you could be in him. He wants you to go up and fight the good fight and to be successful in that battle. To be so, we will need to be faithful. You see, uh, God himself had said he would fight for his people. And the Bible tells us that the victory belongs to the Lord. And isn't it interesting, therefore, that what God actually criticizes his people for is not their failure in warfare. You should have worked out longer on the gym, you know. You should have built up bigger muscles. Who do you think you are? You're not strong enough. What's happened to all that exercise plan I had for you? It's not their failure in warfare he criticizes, but their failure in faithfulness, isn't it? That was behind everything that had gone wrong when they had not taken over this part of the land and that part of the land. As chapter 1 tells us, they did not do this. They did not do this. It's because of their failure, not 
because they weren't big enough and strong enough. That was not the point at all. It was God who was the guy who was going to do it. No, their failure in faithfulness. And so he had sworn, verse 1, to give the land to them. Brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. It had been something he was determined to do and he was intending to do so. But there was a condition to this covenant that he talks about, wasn't there? I would never make, break my covenant and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. So that condition is that they would not make an adulterous covenant with the other religions of the people of the land in which they were entering. If they were to be successful in battle, they needed to be faithful in their relationship to God. And so, you see, God wants us to be successful, but to be successful we need to be faithful, do you see? This is part of the best that God wants for us, happiness and also successfulness, defined by God, not by the world, but defined by God, yes. You see, God does not want Christians or churches to be failures, does he? He wants them to be shiny lights of hope to the world. But for them to be so, they would need to be faithful. Now you may ask, what does this mean? Well, let me put it like this for us. I think one of the things that this means is that there is no such thing as a little sin. Why is that, you ask? Well, because all sin diminishes the territory that you could conquer and the glory you could give to God by so doing. It may seem minor. No one else may know. It may be your little diversion. It's your reward from being good the rest of the week. But that little sin is precisely what is preventing you from being the mature Christian that otherwise you could be and so successful by God's uh, terms. You will not be able to capture the whole land of the promise that God wants for you if you are disobeying God at the same time. This is what this teaches us. However small the sin may seem, you will not be able to do so because thereby you are not keeping the covenant on which the promise of God's best Depends. Third, God wants us to have significance. But to have significance, we need to be submissive to his covenant. And so we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we are called to submit to God's ways, not ours. But you see, in calling for this submission to the terms of his covenant, God is not intending to remove our identity and make us little peons in his great military plan. Not at all. He is intending to give us the same kind of significance that Jesus Christ enjoys as a full and equal part of the Godhead. And the result of our lack of submission to his ways uh, was that now they lived in a land where the surrounding people coexisted with them, infiltrated them, and then would begin to enslave them. No longer was this land theirs. It was a compromise venture that rapidly became the source of constant friction and trouble. And so uh, uh, look at verse 3. It says, They will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a snare to you. 
Now, God is not being vindictive here. He's not trying to be nasty. He is describing the inevitable reality. He is saying, you have chosen this way. And this is the result of your choice. This is what will happen. You will live with these people and they will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. It is the inevitable result of your choice. God's desire had been for them to be the light of the nations, a city on the hill, a land that will proclaim to the watching world, here is a people whose God is the Lord. And so they were meant to be a people of great significance. Not for anything they had done, but purely because that's the kind of God he is who delights to shed grace upon his people. So God wants the best for you, but you need to take it. You need to take happiness by way of holiness. You need to take success by way of faithfulness. You need to take significance by way of submissiveness. And as we do so, we will realize that holiness is happiness. And that success is faithfulness. And that submission to Christ is significance. Because he is the God of the universe. And how more significant could you be than to be a son or daughter of the Lord? Imagine these people, if you will, you know, there they are. They're wondering what to do. Of course, Joshua has died. It is after the death of Joshua. The land is before them. And, and so what happens? Well, they ask the Lord and he tells them, you know, Judah will go up. And Judah does go up and they begin very well. They start to take over the last remaining corners of the territory as God directs. And so it goes on. But what happens is that their energies start to flag. They begin well, but then they start to fade. They start to give up and go slow and say, hey, I can't quite be bothered to take over all of this. We're okay in this little bit of land. I've got my nice plot of land. I have my vineyard. I have my home. And so they begin well, but then they begin to fade. And I want us to see the importance of this, not only for our own individual lives, but also for the life of our nation. Now this covenant here is the covenant with God's people, and so it applies to Christians specifically, and not to nations in general. This is God's people, God's church. But a nation like America, that has enjoyed unparalleled blessings from God, needs to be woken up to realize that these blessings are not its by rights, but by God's sovereign graciousness. And that there is therefore a need to realize if you want to get all of God's goodness, you've got to get over that self-centeredness, to move out from the selfishness of our society that, that barges in in line, that honks when you're two seconds late to go for the red to the green, you know, the light, or whatever it is, right? To move to a more God-centered way of looking at life and reality and acting and being. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Well, we've covered three truths from this introduction to our study in the book of Judges. We'll visit two more when we get together next time. Again, thank you for your patience as we listen to a recording that's had a few challenges, and we'll move into much better recordings right around the corner. 
Meantime, I want to let you know that God-Centered Life is where we're collecting resources. Our website, GodCenteredLife.org, you can find books that are designed to help you in your devotional growth. There's a devotion there that Josh writes, and past programs are there as well. So if you want to take up a study in the book of Romans, a study in the book of John, all of those are available on our website, GodCenteredLife.org. There's also a chance for you to partner with us. In return for a gift of any amount, we'll send you If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis. Click on the Donate tab, share a gift. We'll ship it right out to you. GodCenteredLife.org Next time we get together, loved regardless. God knew all along that his people would fail to fully take the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses that he knew that his people would fail in the conquest before they even entered, he tells him. He knew it was going to happen. We're going to continue this brand new study in the book of Judges when we get together next time. Another reminder, GodCenteredLife.org resources for your devotional life. And this is your invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody